I'm Edith Brown Weiss, and I'm very pleased to be able to give this introductory lecture on international environmental law. What is international environmental law? International environmental law focuses on the human environment, the earth, the natural resources, and the natural system, and our interactions with it. We both affect it, and we are affected by it. We benefit from it, and we can also harm it. Sustainable development is implicit in the subject of international environmental law. The Brundtland Commission report preceding the Rio meeting on, on environment and development uh, defined sustainable development as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. International environmental law has to be considered in tandem with issues of poverty and development. International environmental law has its origins in international law, in public international law. There is a core of principles in public international law that are also relevant and apply to international environmental law. But international environmental law also combines elements of national law because national laws reach transboundary pollution whether or not there's an international agreement sometimes. National laws can govern the import and exports of wastes across national borders, whether or not there's an applicable international agreement. National laws can touch the protection of rich biological diversity of forests and watersheds. International environmental law also combines elements from the private sector and the rules that govern the private sector. These include industry codes of conduct, a non-governmental uh, codes relating to labeling, codes of non-governmental organizations, the ISO 14000 series on environmental uh, aspects of production. International environmental law covers both binding legal instruments, international agreements, the treaties, the conventions. It covers customary international law, such as Principle 21 of the Stockholm Declaration that states have a sponsor responsibility to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction and control do not cause harm to areas outside their jurisdiction or control. It covers principles. And most importantly for the field, it covers soft law or non-binding legal instruments. These instruments are very important to international environmental law because the subject matter and our understanding of it changes very frequently. And soft law instruments are a means to address uh, these changes, uh, these new developments quickly. International environmental law is different in some ways from other fields of international law. First, many of the problems are inherently long-term or intergenerational that international environmental law must address. Uh, secondly, our scientific understanding of the environment is critical to the legal arrangements that are developed to deal with the problems. But our scientific understanding of the environment and our relationship with it is constantly changing. 
sometimes things that we thought were problems aren't so serious. Other times we identify new problems. Our problems are in fact much worse than we thought. Thus the flexibility to adapt to rapidly changing scientific knowledge is critical in this field. What then are the characteristics of international environmental law? The first characteristic is that it's a relatively new field. To be sure, it has ancient, orig long, ancient origins, but as a field, it has really only emerged uh, since 1970, and particularly since the 1972 Stockholm meeting on the human environment. This has an important implication, namely that it's a field that's evolving rapidly so that there are many changes that take place, many new agreements. Secondly, there are lots of agreements and lots of legal instruments in the field of international environmental law. There are now over 1,200 international legal instruments that either are fully concerned with the environment or have one or more provisions that relate to the environment. But, Unlike the trade field, there is no overriding body of international environmental law. There is no one agreement, like the World Trade Organization with its codes, that governs the field. Rather, the legal instruments are dispersed. They're created to address different problems as they arise. There is a set for separate agreements they're often housed in separate international organizations, have separate secretariats, and sometimes separate funding mechanisms and separate reporting requirements. The evolution of the customary rules of international law is still in the beginning stages. A third characteristic is that there is no one organization in which all international environmental law is housed. The United Nations Environment Program, established after the 1972 Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment, is an important international organization, but it does not yet even have the status of other uh, organizations such as the World Health Organization or the World Meteorological Organization. Another characteristic is that there are many essential actors in international environmental law. These include states who continue to be central, but also international institutions, and not only UNEP, but also the International Maritime Organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, the World Meteorological Organization for Tobacco Control, the World Health Organization, and many others. Non-governmental organizations, both international non-governmental organizations and national governmental or national NGOs are important, as well as local NGOs. Corporations are important, and particularly multinational corporations. Subnational units of countries, provinces, lender, states within states are important, and individuals play an important role in formulating and implementing international environmental law. Another characteristic relates to the culture of international environmental law. Environment is something that's of, of concern to everyone. We all have a relationship to the environment.
Thus, the culture is an open one. It fosters transparency, and it involves citizens and people either participating in decisions or implementing them. This contrasts with the trade field, which has a much more closed culture uh, than does the environment field. In environment, you operate in a goldfish bowl where everybody can look in. Another characteristic is that the problem of commons, the commonly shared area, is, a key, is, is key to international environmental law. Examples include the high-level ozone layer in which we all share and in which we are all affected, the climate, oceans, etc. This has some important implications for the legal arrangements to address issues of commons. It means that the co coordination and cooperation of all relevant actors may be needed. First, it may be needed to prevent pollution havens. Pollution havens can destroy the effect of whatever everybody else has agreed to do. And the opposite of that is how to avoid the free rider problem, in which everybody shares in the benefits, but only some pay the costs. And these two issues of avoiding the pollution havens, which undercut the effectiveness of agreements, and avoiding the free rider problem are two of the central issues in international environmental law. They are central issues because international law, environmental law, often deals with problems of commons. In international environmental law, a key problem that has emerged is that of implementing and complying with the agreements that are negotiated. It is very much easier to draft an agreement than to put it into effect and to implement it and to comply with it. And here there's been an important insight gained from research on compliance with international environmental agreements, namely that there is no such thing as taking a one-shot photograph of a country's compliance with an international environmental agreement. Rather, compliance with an international environmental agreement, and I would argue with agreements more generally, changes over time, particularly in response to changes in the sharp changes in a country's economic or political uh, situation. And finally, in international environmental law, agreements are often appropriately viewed as living instruments that in response to changes in scientific understanding of the problem and of those who affected are affected by the particular actions, that the agreement itself evolves over time. And in that sense, one might appropriately view them as living uh, instruments. If these things are characteristic, then, of international environmental law, what can we say about the history of the subject? Has it changed over time? Can we identify some areas some, some periods of time that are different from other periods of time. And for this part of the lecture, I would like to separate it into the time period before 1972, between 1972 and 1992, and then the period after 1992, even projecting a bit, up to 2012. 
This has some basis in the events in international environmental law, for it was in 1972 that we had the first international conference concerned with environment, the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment. Twenty years later, in 1992, we had the Rio Conference on Environment and Development. And hopefully in 2012, we will have another 20-year conference looking back at what has happened since the Rio Conference. In the period before 1972, there was concern internationally with the use of specific resources and with their conservation. There are early agreements that relate to fur seals, that relate to whales, and that relate to migratory birds. There's also some concern with pollution. For example, the 1909 Boundary Waters Convention between Canada and the United States uh, provides in Article 4 that they are, the countries are not to pollute the waters uh, to the detriment of the other. There is also a regional agreement in this period, the Western Hemisphere uh, Convention of, on the Preservation of, of Nature. And there emerges the African Convention on the Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources. There is little national legislation that deals with environment. The 1960s is often associated with a literature that for the first time highlights the significance of environmental problems. Rachel Carson's book in 1962 on the circle of poison, or Jean Dorff's book in France. The first piece of national environmental legislation that proposed an environmental impact statement is only adopted in 1969. In the United States, the National Environmental Policy Act set forth for the first time an environmental impact statement for major activities having a significant effect, uh, major federal activities uh, significantly affecting the environment. All of this then is a run-up to 1972. In 1972, in, in, the, in the days preceding 1972 in the Stockholm meeting, it was thought that environment and development were at loggerheads with each other. But an important meeting was held in Fune, Switzerland, which preceded the Stockholm meeting, in which experts gathered together and worked out an architectural framework showing that environment and development were in fact compatible, consistent, could go together, and might need to go together. This then provided a very useful framework for the first environmental conference, as I've said, the United Nations uh, Stockholm Conference on the Human uh, environment. That conference produced the Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment, which has become one of the basic documents that underlies international uh, environmental law. That document set forth the famous Principle 21, in which, so which said that states have a responsibility to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction and control do not cause harm to areas outside their jurisdiction and control. Principle 22 dealt with liability, but it simply said that we need to develop liability regarding environmental activities uh, further. But Principle 21 became one of the bedrocks then of international environmental law. So what happens in the period between 1972 
1992. And I view this as the period of rapid growth in multilateral environmental agreements. Many MEAs are negotiated. Indeed, it is possible to talk about the rise of treaty congestion in multilateral environmental agreements. The focus shifts a bit. It shifts from a focus which has been on air pollution, transboundary air pollution, and transboundary water pollution to one that is focused also on how do we protect that high-level ozone layer, which led to the negotiation of the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer and its predecessor, the Vienna Convention on the Protection of the Ozone Layer, or, or the framework uh, for the Montreal Protocol. It led to negotiations and concluded in 1992 on climate change. So the pollution expanded from simply being focused on air and water pollution to encompassing a much broader, globally important and uh, commons problem of ozone and climate. It also expanded to include other specific pollutants, uh, toxic pollutants, uh, heavy metals, uh, persistent organic pollutants. Within the green area, namely the conservation of natural resources, the focus also shifted from one that was only focused on specific species, fur seals, whales, migratory birds. And in the case of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, which was concluded about the time of, of the 1972 Stockholm Convention, controlling trade in specified species across national borders, it shifts from that focus on specific species to one that looks at biological diversity in the ecosystem. And thus we get the negotiations of the biological, the negotiation of the Biological Diversity Convention, which was concluded at the time of Rio in 1992. We also get the negotiation in ASEAN of a regional convention that deals with biological diversity and natural resource uh, conservation. During the same period, we see an emergence also of attention to the oceans and the problem of pollution of the oceans, whether it is from land-based marine sources, whether it is from dumping of, of pollutants into the oceans, or from vessel-source-based uh, vessel pollution. After 1972, UNEP was established, and under UNEP auspices, the the regional seas conventions were negotiated. They're very significant for international environmental law because they set up the model, which was later to be followed in the Montreal Protocol, in the climate change, and in other international agreements. The model was a framework agreement complemented by one or more protocols dealing with specific aspects of the problem. There's a very interesting wrinkle in the way the Regional Seas uh, Agreements handled this. Namely, that when you joined a Regional Seas Agreement, you also had to join at least one of the protocols attached to the Regional Seas Agreement. That aspect of the model, of course, disappeared when the agreement addressing the ozone layer, namely the Vienna Convention on the Protection of the Ozone Layer, when countries could join that uh, before they joined the Montreal Protocol 
uh, on substances that deplete the ozone layer. But for the oceans, then we have the regional seas agreement, we have those agreements concerned with dumping, and we have the law of the sea agreement uh, that, is, that is negotiated and has important provisions dealing with pollution of the oceans. One of the problems that emerges in the period 1972 to 1992, which I've alluded to earlier, is what can be termed a problem of treaty congestion. This is because the agreements usually had separate secretariats, separate provisions for reporting, separate provisions for funding. On the one hand, this is a very good development because it means that all of these provisions will be very responsive to the parties that are joining the protocol and it will meet their needs. On the other hand, it also raised problems of a lack of coordination between them and certain inefficiencies in terms of the amount of resources that were needed to implement the agreements. This became a particular problem at the national level when countries were strapped for both the people power and the resources to be able to fulfill all the requirements of the various separate agreements. And so under the auspices of UNEP, several meetings were held uh, with the intent to try and have coordination when possible and to see whether uh, some of these uh, separate provisions could be combined and administered together. Thus it was as a result that for both the Climate Change Convention and the Biological Diversity Convention, uh, the Global Environmental Facility was designated as the funding agency rather than a separate funding uh, body reporting directly to the parties. Finally, in the period between 1972 and 1992, you see the rise of a very active civil society, the rise of many non-governmental organizations who become active in international environmental issues and, often, uh, and are often present at the negotiation of international environmental agreements. What then of the period between 1992 and the year 2012? In 1992, we had the Rio Conference on, on Environment and Development, where countries for the first time really confirmed that sustainable development was what was needed. This was followed, of course, 10 years later by the Johannesburg Summit in South Africa, the World Summit on Sustainable Development, which developed an action plan, Millennium Goals, and a notion of public and private partnerships. But what ha happens in international environmental law in this intervening period between 1992, where we are now, looking forward to 2012? One of the most important developments is what I call the spread of international environmental law into other areas. One could also characterize it as linking up with other areas of international, international law. Three areas show this. The first is the link between international environmental law and trade law. Indeed, one could say, how do we reconcile environmental, international environmental law and international trade law. The North American Agreement, uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, has a provision in it in which certain international environmental agreements, certain MEAs, actually trump conflicting provisions uh, in the North American Free Trade in the North American Free Trade Agreement. The World Trade Organization, uh, in 1994, when it when it uh, came into being 
has sustainable development as one, is, uh, one is it, as one of its objectives. The GATT uh, provides in Article 20 that if there is a, first, if one finds a, a violation of some of the earlier provisions of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, then there can be an exception in Article 20 uh, if it either uh, comes under Article um, 20B or under Article 20G and satisfies the Chapeau language. Most importantly for our purposes, there have been several very significant disputes that have been settled by the WTO that concern environmental issues. These range uh, from reformulated questions of reformulated gasoline, uh, questions before the WTO was in existence related to uh, tuna and the fishing for tunas that captured dolphins, and the shrimp turtle case in which, uh, which, which involved national regulations controlling uh, the way in which uh, harvesting a shrimp took place in order to try and protect the endangered species of turtles and the question related to the manner in which those were developed and implemented and where they constituted a barrier on trade. Then we had questions related to beef hormones, uh, questions earlier related to tobacco regulation, and more recently questions related to retreaded tires uh, and to GMOs. We also have a link between international environmental law and investment law, foreign investment law. Some of, the, some of the questions that have come up before the ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, have dealt with environmental issues. We also have linkages with human rights. In 1994, the United Nations uh, set up an expert group to look at whether there was a human right to environment and to try and articulate, articulate that right to an environment. The group was actually set up before 1994, uh, but the rapporteur produced the report in 1994 and a draft declaration on a human right to environment. And in the year 2002, again under UN auspices, a meeting of experts was held to address that issue. There is also ongoing under the auspices again of the United Nations, uh, consideration of a right to water as part of the delineation of the International Covenant on, uh, International Covenant on Economic, uh, Cultural, and Social uh, Rights. In addition, during this period, we see increasingly a number of states in their national constitutions adopting provisions relating to environment, including provisions that would have a right to a healthy environment. So the first then development between 1992 and 2012 has been the linking of international environmental law with other fields of law. A second major development has been in development itself and the, and the activities of multilateral development banks and the role that they have played in development projects and programs. The World Bank and the regional development banks, the African Development Bank, Asian Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, have all adopted uh, provisions related to the environment, including environmental assessment. The World Bank also has provisions related to forests, to wildlife, to cultural, 
uh, to indigenous peoples, and of course to social uh, issues. Thirdly, in this period, the private sector has begun addressing environmental issues in a, in a significant and broad sweep. In Rio, there was a business roundtable, but that was regarded as really quite, quite, far, uh, quite innovative. By the time Johannesburg came around 10 years later, uh, there were public-private partnerships. But the private sector now has initiatives such as the International Standards Organization's 14,000 series, which is a series of steps that companies take to make their production green. You also have private efforts at labeling for sustainable fisheries or sustainable forest projects or, the st uh, or sustainable forest uh, management. You have stockholder efforts uh, to hold corporations accountable. You have voluntary codes of conduct. Fourth, I think that there has been a significant shift since 1992 in the balance between negotiating new agreements and focus on implementation and complying with them. It seems that between 1972 and 1992, the focus was very clear on negotiating new agreements. Now the focus is also on how do we implement those new agreements, how do we get countries, facilitate countries to comply with them, particularly countries that lack the capacity uh, to comply with them. And in the period since 1992, there's also been the emergence of the use of market mechanisms to foster compliance at the national level, particularly related to, um, uh, to controlling chemicals that deplete the ozone level, level and to addressing climate change. There continues to be in this period a focus on keeping international agreements up to date, doing so by adding protocols, having amendments, adjustments to the rate at which chemicals are phased out, annexes to existing agreements, or negotiating agreements at the region or bilateral uh, level uh, to complement uh, broader agreements. And there has been a growth in soft law. There continues to be a growth in soft law to address new and emerging issues. And finally, during this period, climate change has come to the fore. And I would suggest that it's emerging as one of the great challenges for 2012 and for the future after that. Climate change affects all aspects of the economy, involves all countries, involves science, involves social issues, cultural issues, and what it will mean is that international environmental law really becomes engulfed in a much broader issue with potentially enormous changes for the field of international environmental law. Uh, the second issue, uh, 2012, that I think is very much emerging is one of equity. We'll have 8 to 10 billion people. They can't live in poverty, or they should not live in poverty. Two billion people today live on less than $2 a day. This relates to what we use, how we use it, how we care for it, and to equity issues of distribution among the peoples of the world today. And the equity of who has access and ability to consume, who bears the burden of waste disposal, the destruction of natural resources, I think will be a key one when 2012 rolls around. Sustainable development is most in the interests of poor communities, 
although it is in the interests of all countries in the world. What then can we say about what we've learned as we approach 2012? <coughs> what have we learned in international environmental law? And one might draw several insights. First, that international environmental law has to deal with systems. Examples. Wastes are a part of the system. They have to go somewhere. We can store them, and then the question becomes where? In the air, in the water, in the land, underground. We can minimize them, or we can recycle and reuse them. But we have to accept the fact that they are a normal part of the system. Secondly, that we must deal with ecological systems, because what happens to one component of the system affects the status of other components of the system, whether it be layers of fisheries, each dependent on the other, whether it be pollution, causing acid rain, which destroys forests, whether it be the destruction of forests, which adds to the sediment of dams and greatly shortens their lifetime, whether it be the relationship between biofuels and climate. Some issues that we're dealing here on the systems approach are non-renewable on human timescales, or some resources are non-renewable on human timescales. Or we may have unique natural sites, which can't be recovered once lost. But one of the lessons we have learned is, hopefully, that we have to deal with this, the problems, as a system. And this brings me to my second point, which is that there is no one handle to control the system to management. If laws are strict in one area, pollution of the oceans, then the pollutions may go into the air where it's less strict or into the water. Thus, when we look at things, we need to have a systematic, uh, we need to have a systematic as uh, assessment of the whole system and an integration of the system. Another thing that we've learned is a little bit on how to deal with scientific uncertainty and changes in our scientific understanding. How to draft and implement agreements that can keep up with changes in science. We've also had some experience in how to deal with non-parties to an agreement. This is a critical issue when we're dealing with the commons, whether it be climate change or whether it be the ozone layer or whether it be the oceans. And so we have provisions in international environmental agreements that say no trade with non-parties. Although to be sure to ensure consistency with the WTO, there is usually something that might say, unless there's something comparable as approved by the parties or other things suggesting something comparable that would satisfy. We've also learned, I think, that the prevention of harm is more important and effective than trying to rely on a liability scheme. It's very hard to get liability and to enforce liability. It is, I think, no accident that Principle 22 in Stockholm uh, calls for countries to develop international law regarding liability, and Re the Rio Declaration 20 years later repeats almost the exact same language. We've also learned that involving the public is essential because environment is a public issue. 
that access to information is important, transparency, and participation in public uh, decision-making, all of which is articulated in the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development. And we've learned that inv international environmental law is not an isolated subject, but it has to be considered and linked together with other relevant subjects in international law. And finally, we've learned that agreements always seem to get more complicated over time. We add appendices, we add annexes, uh, we add protocols, we don't simplify. And that's because the problems get more complicated as we try to deal with them. Thank you very much.